I should say after this morning's talk, I had a whole people come up to me and say, that's the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. Your jokes were funny. That was br-. So I should say before I speak that this is in fact Warren's sermon and not mine at all. Uh, he came past my house last night at about half past ten and threw the sermon at me and said, here's the sermon, my computer's in, in, in your study, I'm off to the hospital. And uh, raced off to hospital. And then this morning in church, at, uh, in the nine o'clock service, we got a text to say that they'd had a little girl. I was expecting him here tonight, but bludger that he is, he did, didn't feel he should show up. So uh, you've got me to give Warren's sermon again. Uh, so, Warren's sermon. You'll need uh, Zechariah chapter 3 open on page um, 669 or 1474. You'll also find his outline, which is on the inside of the piece of paper you were given as you came in. Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that in him we have complete forgiveness. We are clean and holy and pure before you. We pray that as we look at this wonderful symbol and picture of this tonight in Zechariah 3, that we'll be thrilled again, that you will, cleanse, that you will help us to recognize the cleansing that is ours in Christ and you help us to serve you with confidence and joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to begin with, I've got a quick quiz for you. I'm going to give you a quote, and you've got to uh, think in your mind, where does this quote come from? Okay, you ready? Here's the quote. Out damn spot, I say. Okay, got that in your head? Okay, no, it's not 101 Dalmatians, Sean. It's uh, <laughs> uh, Macbeth. Macbeth, okay, Shakespeare. It's Lady Macbeth. Out damn spot, there she is. I don't know if that's the original one. Um, <laughs> You know the story, she's, uh, she has a part in the murder of King Duncan and then she feels, feels very guilty about it. In her sleep, she sees the king blood, king's blood on her hands in her dream and she's washing and washing and washing but she's saying, out damn spot, but uh, she says, will these hands ne'er be clean? No amount of water can take away her guilt. As Lady Macbeth came to find out, guilt can be a very powerful emotion. It, it can be the sort of emotion that can lead us to turmoil, the sort of emotion that can lead us even to despair. Now, we need to remember from the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that there is such a thing as godly sorrow. Guilt is not all bad. Sometimes we are objectively guilty and the fact that we feel guilty is not a bad thing. Uh, uh, This feeling of guilt can help us to recognize sin in our lives and it can cause us to turn to God, to cry out to God, to, to, to repent, to seek forgiveness and find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good thing, godly sorrow. But it's also true from the same passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that there is a sorrow that leads to death. Guilty feelings can also be bad and destructive. For many Christians, they live under a cloud of guilt. They feel constantly guilty. Sometimes that guilt can come from a particular serious sin in their past, perhaps a divorce or an abortion or adultery or pornography or deception, drunkenness, theft. There's this serious sin in the past and even though the Christian has repented, they're still left with intense feelings of guilt. Their guilt haunts them because of their past sins. Maybe it's some big thing. But then there are lots of Christians um, who, who they don't feel guilty because of any one big sin. It's just the the constant little failures being pointed out week after week from the pulpit, or whatever, whatever. The, the constant little failures. It's, oh, I missed my quiet time again. Or it's, I could have given that money to missionaries, but in fact I bought the flat screen TV. It's 
grumpy with the kids again or whatever it is. And it just all adds up to produce these constant kind of low-level feelings of guilt. Can you identify with either of those? I think I didn't write this, but I can identify with it quite well. Particularly just that generalised kind of anxious guilt that you're never living up to God's standards. Uh, and you try repenting, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a bit like the spot on Lady Macbeth's hand, isn't it? Out, out damn spot, but it, it won't go away. You ever feel like that? Well, if you feel like that, then Zechariah chapter 3 is the chapter for you. It is a great chapter in the Bible. It's a message you've got to hear. If you don't already have your Bible open, do please have it open at Zechariah 3. And as, as you look that up, let me, let me remind you of the story so far. So 587 BC, uh, the Jews sent off into exile in Babylon, 587. But then about 48 years later, 539 BC, the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire and they say, you can go home and rebuild your temple. 539 BC, the Jews come back into the Promised Land, into Judah. But now by the time of Zechariah, 20 more years have passed. It's now about 520 BC. And the Jews, they've got busy trying to build their own houses and eke out an existence in the Promised Land. But the temple still isn't built. The temple still lies in ruins. 20 years down the track, that vital, central aspect of what they're supposed to be doing, it hasn't been done. And so, as we saw last week, God gives visions to Zechariah. Do you remember there are eight visions in this first section, the first six chapters? Eight visions, and they are visions that call on the Jews to build the temple. Remember we saw the first three last week? Well, now we come to the fourth vision. The fourth vision there in Zechariah chapter 3. And in this vision, Zechariah sees a man by the name of Joshua. Don't be confused, this is not the Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. That's about... A thousand years before, it's not my Joshua, that's about two and a half thousand years later. Okay, so it's in between. Okay, it's a Joshua in between. Now this Joshua, he is a special person, he's the high priest at the time of Zechariah. He's a priest without a temple, but he's still the high priest. And in this vision, Zechariah sees Joshua in a heavenly courtroom. Okay, it's a Phoenician courtroom. Think Judge Judy or something, only we're in heaven. Okay, now the judge is... The angel of the Lord, representing God. And then playing the part of the prosecuting attorney is Satan, there in heaven. Read with me uh, the first verse of Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3.1, we read, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now you've got to recognize the, the significance of what's going on here. Joshua is the high priest. If Satan can bring an accusation, uh, an accusation that stands against Joshua, if God has to find Joshua guilty and condemn him, then that's the end of Israel. That's the end of the Jews. Uh, remember, it is the high priest who is the only one who can represent the people before God. It is the high priest who is the only one can, who can go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice for sin that will cleanse the Israelites. If the high priest is unqualified, well, it doesn't matter if you build the temple or not. It's just bricks. It's not going to do anything. There can be no atonement without a high priest to offer the sacrifices. Can you see the outcome of this trial is really quite significant. And you know, I reckon Satan must have thought this was just a shoe in 
The easiest job ever, because it's not like Satan has to go out searching for evidence to prove Joshua's guilt. As we'll see in a moment, it's actually, it's right there on display for everyone to see. In fact, Joshua is wearing the evidence. Evidence in the form of filthy, dirty clothes. Filthy, dirty clothes that represent his sin. No need for Satan to call in the CSI detectives here. No need for Horatio Cain to come in and do some forensic analysis. Joshua is wearing his guilt. This is open and shut case. But then something really interesting happens. Before Satan can even open his mouth, an angel of the Lord rebukes him. He rebukes him on behalf of God. Why? Well, because Satan has failed to take a very important Satan has failed to take into consideration a very important point. He's failed to take into consideration that God has made promises to his people. Do you remember the promises of the first vision, the it's time vision? God promised that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. God promised that the temple will be re-established. God promised that he would once again come to dwell with his people. God promised that he would once again bless them and bring them prosperity. God has made his promises. The role of high priest will be re-established and so the Lord shuts Satan down and rebukes him. Now, is Joshua guilty of sin? Absolutely, yes. Does he deserve to be thrown under the fire of God's judgment? Absolutely, yes. But the angel of the Lord says that Joshua is like a stick that's been snatched from the flames. God has other plans for him and so he has rescued him. And so God rebukes Satan. Now you can imagine how Satan felt about this. But what about his guilt? What about the evidence? What about the dirty clothes? How can you say he's qualified? But again, before Satan can even open his mouth, the angel of the Lord calls for the evidence to be taken away. Joshua's clothes are removed and a new set of clothes is put on him. Not dirty clothes, not tracky-dacks or something like that. These are clean clothes. These are rich garments, garments suitable for a high priest in the service of God. And now Satan has got nothing on Joshua. All his cause for accusation is removed. At that point, with his new clothes on, God has a charge for Joshua. He says, got Joshua, go and serve me. Walk in my ways Serve me faithfully, and he gives an amazing promise. Not just that Joshua will be high priest in the temple, but he says, he says, you will be given a place among those standing here. You will even get a place in heaven. Have a look with me at this vision in verse 2. Zechariah 3, 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, this is Zechariah, Put a clean turban on his head, so he can be a high priest again. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. We'll talk about a rags to riches story. Amazing turnaround. From, from, from dirty, filthy clothes, Satan accusing him to clean, rich garments, promised a place in heaven. 
Amazing turnaround. And do you get the point of the vision for the people that it's written for? Temple worship will go ahead. God will dwell with his people. The priest, for, for all his sin, will be cleansed and he will be able to make atonement for the people. And so the message for the people, get on and build him a temple. You, you've got yourselves a priest, he can make atonement for you, now give him a temple. Right? It's the same message as, as, as all of the visions so far. Okay, but there's more to this vision. More to this vision. Because in this vision, God goes on to make some more promises. Promises about the future. Promises that are even bigger and better than anything that's happened so far. Through the angel of the Lord, God tells Zechariah that everything he's just seen happen to Joshua is in fact just a symbol. A symbol of things yet to come. The whole wardrobe change thing, it's a symbol that will find its reality in the future. In the future when a bloke by the name of the branch comes. Okay, not an ordinary name that you give to somebody. It might sound a bit strange to us to call someone the branch, but Zechariah would have known exactly what was going on. Because it comes from Isaiah chapter 11 and from a few places in Jeremiah. Uh, the branch is a reference to the Messiah. And he's called the branch because he will be a branch out of the family tree of David. Uh, from the stump of Jesse, says Isaiah, who's David's dad, or, or a branch from David's line, according to Jeremiah. This is going to be one of King David's descendants, the Messiah. And the angel, tells, angel of the Lord tells Zechariah that this branch will bring about the reality that you've just seen symbolized in Joshua. He will truly take away sin. Now to show how serious he is about keeping his promise, God sets before Joshua a stone. An ordinary stone. This is a stone with seven eyes on it. Um, we find out in the next chapter that these eyes represent the eyes of the Lord that look out into all the world, go through all the world. So this is saying that this stone before Joshua says, God knows everything, God is able to do this, it will happen. It will happen. And what will happen? Well, God says that this branch will take away the sins of all the land in a single day. And in that day, God's blessing will be on his people. And they will dwell in peace and prosperity in the promised land. Read with me from verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. And I'll engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day... Each of you will invite his neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. <coughs> well, what a vision. What a vision. Can you imagine how thrilled Zechariah would have been as he saw this vision? And can you imagine what a joy it must have been as he passed it on to his fellow Jews? Hey guys, it's worth building this temple because God has his priests. God has his priest cleansed, ready to offer sacrifice for us. Atonement will be made. God will come and dwell with us again. We're going to be blessed. Pretty cool, hey? Uh, but you know, if this was a great message for the Israelites two and a half thousand years ago, you'd have to say it's an even greater message for us because, I mean, I don't know what your experience was as you read that, but as I read that, it was just screaming Jesus to me, wasn't it? I mean, who do you reckon is the branch from the family line of David who comes to be the Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world in one day? 
I reckon it's Jesus, don't you? <laughs> I suspect it could easily be talking about how he came in the line of David, how he died on the cross to bear our sin. The Apostle John puts it this way. You know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he, on that cross he swapped his clean, pure, righteous clothes for our filthy, sin-stained ones. He, he, he took the evidence of our guilt and he planted it on himself. He was thrown into the fire of judgment on our behalf so that we don't have to be. The coming of Jesus Christ is where these symbols in Zechariah 3 find their reality. And friends, that is a reality for you and for me today. Friends, if you are relying on Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then you sit here now pure before God. You sit here now spotless before God. You sit here now clean before God. You sit here now forgiven before God. You sit here now not in dirty tracky dacks, but in beautiful righteousness of Christ clothes. You are as clean and as pure and as holy and as acceptable to God as you can possibly be because Jesus has taken all your sin away on that one day when he took away all the sin of the land. It's a truth summed up for us in Colossians chapter 1 where we read, Once you were alienated for God from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, that now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Your guilt is gone. The evidence has been taken away. You are free from accusation. It cannot be pinned in on you because it was pinned on Jesus on that cross. Well, what about Satan, then, you may ask? What about his accusations? Well, you want to know what happened to Satan at the time of the cross? Look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. Here's another heavenly courtroom scene. The Apostle John writes, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What happened to Satan at the time of the cross? He has been thrown out of heaven. Do you know what that means? It means God is not listening anymore. God is not listening to the accusations of Satan anymore. If you are forgiven through the blood of Christ, you have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. God is not listening to Satan's accusations. Uh, once he may have been in heaven, in the vision in Zechariah, look at them, look at their sin, look at their unworthiness, look at their guilt, but now our guilt is gone. And God has said to Satan, enough, out of my sight. I will not hear accusations against those who are in Christ. Friends, if you're trusting Jesus, that is your reality. You have no guilt. Not guilty says God. So um, what are you going to do the next time those feelings of conviction and guilt come upon you? What should you do? What's the appropriate way to respond? Well, we need to remember there is such a thing as godly sorrow in the Bible. 
Uh, it is possible that guilty feelings point to something that we are objectively doing wrong, that is unhelpful. Uh, it may be the Holy Spirit putting his finger on some sin in your life and at those times we need to stop and we need to, to think, well, is there a sin that I need to deal with? And, and if so, at those times you say, thank you God for bringing this to my attention. I am so sorry, I repent, please forgive my sin through Jesus, help me not to do it again. And then you know what you do? You give it the flick. It's gone. It's finished. It's past. And you are clean and pure, able to be in God's presence, able to serve him with joy and with confidence. That's the way to respond to guilty feelings. Well, if that's the way we should respond, why, why don't we? Why do we so often live under a cloud of guilt, maybe from past sins or maybe from just the constant little sins that are in our lives? Why do you reckon we still live under so much guilt? I reckon there are a number of reasons, but there's one in particular that comes to mind today, and it comes out of Revelation 12, because uh, in Revelation 12 it says there that Satan has been thrown out of the heavenly courtroom. He's no longer able to get into the ear of God, but you know where he ends up in Revelation 12? He ends up on the earth. It says, woe to the earth because Satan has come down to you. See, Satan is now here and he's, uh, he's uh, roaming about like a roaring lion. God's not listening to him anymore. He's looking for people who will. And so he'll whisper to you some lies like this. Lies like this. Oh, you know that God could never forgive you for that sin, don't you? Or this lie. If you were a real Christian, you'd do better. You wouldn't be such a failure. Or this lie. Oh, I see you've gone and done that sin again. You do realise God has limits on his forgiveness, don't you? Well, this lie. Look at all these other Christians here tonight. They've all got it together. Why don't you? Yeah, now Satan, the great deceiver, he, he, he whispers in our ears, God won't listen, and so he tries talking to us. But sadly, when we believe his lies, it can be really devastating. Devastating for our relationship with God. Devastating for our service to God. I mean, who feels like praising God when you feel condemned by God? Who, who feels like praying to God when you feel like you're not worthy to be in his presence? Who feels like meeting with his people when you feel like they've got it together but you're a second-rate Christian? Who, who feels like serving God when you're overcome by a sense of unworthiness? Who feels like sharing the good news of forgiveness when you don't even feel, feel forgiven yourself? As we listen to Satan, Satan's lies, it can, it can paralyze us. Friends, you've got to realise this. If God has declared you not guilty, you have no right to declare yourself guilty. Imagine that, uh, that scene in Zechariah chapter 3. So Joshua was there, and Satan's at his right hand, and the angel of the Lord is there, and the angel of the Lord says, Okay, uh, Joshua, you're the, you're the stick snatched from the flames. I give you your new clothes. Now go and serve me. But Joshua says, Oh, well, no, I think I'll just stand here and think about those dirty clothes. And uh, there's something that's just really, that's not just kind of humble. That's a bit off, isn't it? It's not humble at all because God has said you're not guilty. A humble person would say, all right, I'm not guilty. I believe you. Friends, what should you do if you're the sort of Christian who constantly feels guilty about your sin? You know what you need to do? You need to repent. R.C. Sproul talks about a lady who came to him. R.C. Sproul's a theologian in America. Talks about a lady who came to him and she said to him, oh, look, I had, did this terrible sin 
years ago and I still feel so guilty about it. And he said to her, well, what you've got to do is confess your sin, uh, put your trust in Jesus and know that he's forgiven you. She said, I've confessed that sin hundreds and hundreds of times, but still I feel guilty in my heart. And he said to her, okay, well, what you've got to do, you've got to repent and confess your sin and find the forgiveness that Jesus offers. She said, but that's exactly what I've done a hundred thousand times. He said, no, 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 you don't need to confess that sin. You need to confess the sin that God has declared you not guilty and you're still declaring yourself guilty. You need to confess the sin that you are undermining the blood of Jesus Christ and saying it's not enough to cover your sin. You need to confess your sin that you don't believe God's declaration of you. Friend, do you know what you need to do if you still feel guilty and you're feeling paralysed? You need to repent. I don't say that to make you feel guiltier. Now I've got to feel guilty about that as well. I say that to liberate you. You are genuinely pure and clean before God. There is no accusation. He says not guilty. Why do we still feel so guilty then? Could be any number of things. Could be something about the way our parents used guilt on us. If you're Jewish like me, we're experts at using guilt on each other. (laughs) Maybe, I think probably the Chinese do it pretty well as well. Yes. That may be something you need to talk about. Maybe something you even need to talk to a pastor about or even a counsellor about perhaps. But ultimately it comes down to this. God says not guilty. I feel guilty. Who do I believe? Got to believe God, don't I? Martin Luther. Can you see where I am now, person on the computer? Because I've gone way away. <laughs> Martin Luther uh, was a man who suffered from terrible depression and despair. And he was once asked, Do you feel forgiven? Do you feel forgiven? Here's what he said. He said, No, I don't feel forgiven. But I'm as sure as there's a God in heaven that I am forgiven. As sure as there is a God in heaven, I am. Now, friends, when those waves of guilt come over you, don't pull away from God, will you? Don't, don't stop praying. Don't stop meeting with Christians. Don't stop praising God. Don't stop evangelizing. Don't stop temple building. That's just exactly what Satan wants. Make a conscious decision to say, God says not guilty. I believe him, even if I don't feel it. Friends, Martin Luther did it. You can do it too. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us live according to to this reality, the reality that our sin is truly taken away. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you now for taking away our sin through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for snatching us from the fire of judgment, for cleansing us, for taking away our sin-stained clothes and clothing us in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for declaring us not guilty in your sight. Our Lord and God, we're so sorry for the times when we failed to take you at your word, for the times when we believed the lies of Satan. Father, please set us free from needless guilt. Set us free that we might serve you wholeheartedly, full of confidence and thanks and praise. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.